You're listening to audio from Grace Community Church in Anger, North Carolina. More information about Grace Community Church can be found at graceccnc.org. Well, good morning. So glad you are here uh, worshiping with us this morning at Grace Community Church. Uh, several weeks ago, I asked how many of you like history, how much you enjoy reading history, how many of you enjoy reading history. And I honestly, I was surprised at the number of people that raised their hand. I thought, wow, this is really awesome. I imagine those that do not like history don't because of all the boring stuff that is so often the, what you have to wade through at the first of any good history. Look, if it's a 500-page history book and the first 100 pages are not boring, put it aside. It's, it's not going to be that great. But if you hang in there, those first 100 pages are incredibly foundational for what's coming afterwards. Um, and careful readers of history know that without taking the time to lay a solid foundation, <clears throat> much nuance and color is lost in the translation. And if you don't get that foundation, it's only a short step to error in thinking about the people and the events of years gone by. <clears throat> if there is anything, anything that I could say is lacking in our nation today, it's a lack of historical perspective. We just don't understand the past. And so consequently, we speak loudly to things that are happening today and don't realize all that has brought us to this place. We um, need to understand history. But that, look, put all of that aside. Nationally, that's no big deal when you think about what it means to be properly grounded in Scripture. I mean, what does history have to do with our biblical worldview and understanding and the ways that we interact with those who don't know Christ as we heard about this morning. Um, when you, you read the Bible, you recognize that the foundation is everything. The Bible has a very different trajectory than a lot of history that you may read. Uh, I, I'm going to dispute what I just got through saying about the first part needs to be boring. Not at all. Not in Scripture. You go to Genesis, and man, it's creation. It's incredible story after story with profound theological impacts uh, all through Genesis. And, and, and it makes the first book of the Bible seem like it belongs more in the New Testament than it does the Old Testament. I, I wish I had time to elaborate on that. Uh, we're going to be back in Genesis in two weeks, but this morning as we think about um, <clears throat> grace alone, we're going to be looking at Genesis 2, 16 to uh, 3, 24 with a few verses omitted for time. We have an abbreviated message time this morning so that we can get to our solar panel will be the focus, uh, uh, of, the focus of which will be the implications of God's grace. And they start in the very beginning of Scripture. So just a brief word about what we're doing in this series. It's solas, five solas. What's a soul? It just, it's the Latin for the word alone. October 2017, as David just told us, marks the 500-year anniversary of the beginning of the Protestant movement in which a number of churches moved away from the Catholic Church over differences in doctrine. It's important to remember that, that, that these reformers did not want to move away from the Catholic Church. Not everything the Catholic Church said was awful, but there was a lot wrong. And they said, we have to correct this. And the church said, no, get in line or we'll burn you at the stake. Literally, we'll, we'll execute you if you don't get in line. And so they moved away. Sola gratia, okay, we'll go with gratia, all right, for Latin. Or grace alone is one of the five solas that distinguishes Protestant doctrine from Catholic doctrine. It's, it's not that the medieval church didn't believe in the authority of Scripture. They didn't deny the authority of Scripture or that Jesus was the God-man come to save sinners, nor did they deny the need for God's grace and for faith in salvation, or that God is worthy of glory. It's only when you added the word alone that you were 
in danger of being burned, literally burned at the stake. Can you imagine that? Being burned for publicly affirming, believing and publicly affirming that God saves sinners by grace alone? It's why the context of historical events and thoughts are important in contemporary conversations. Why do Protestants think that God's grace is essential to salvation? Because of man's nature. Adam was created with original righteousness. He's the only person in all of history. Original righteousness. I suppose we could... could, uh, uh, give the same status to, to Eve as well. But Adam, is, as the head of all the human race, was given <coughs> original <coughs> righteousness. But he sinned, and thus none of us is born righteous. The doctrine of original sin points to Adam's sin as representative of all humanity, and it's passed to all. So this morning, I'm going to be reading from Genesis 2 and 3 with the briefest of comments. And even if you don't believe me, even if you do believe me, pray for me that that will be the case. Brief comments on this chapter. Look, perhaps the biggest challenge in this series is is what not to say. My, My goodness. My goodness. What What can you leave out? You can't believe how much we're leaving out. At the end of the message, uh, two of our elders, Bert Wallace and Jim McLaughlin, are going to join me to talk about grace alone. Look, trust me this morning. I'm going to make a a larger case for this uh, next week. Trust me when I say that the scripture we read this morning is foundational for everything else in this series. And truly, though it's going to sound fantastical, the first three chapters of Genesis laid the foundation for everything in Scripture and for understanding all of life. I'm going to make it, again, I'm going to make a bigger case for that next week. But if you do not believe the first three chapters of Genesis and a whole lot of your biblical worldview goes out the window. And when that goes out the window, really, Christ goes out. Everything falls apart in the first three chapters of Genesis. If you're a scientist and you say, I struggle with that, just hang on until next week. Hang on. If you are... Arminian in your theology and you say, you know, I just think God offers salvation. We have a choice. Let, let's talk about all of that next week. You know how it is when you're, 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 you're just you're lying awake in the morning and you, you think about things that <clears throat> later on you think, oh, well, that was just, you know, I was in that twilight kind of a era or period of my thinking. This morning I was thinking about next week saying, look, I know I'm going to say something that makes you mad, but don't, <laughs> please understand, I've been mad as fire all week long because I, I have been thinking about this for a couple of weeks about the things that I want to say. In light of all that we engage and wrestle with today, and, and again, I'll just, <laughs> by saying this, It's very important for you to believe and understand the truth in the first three chapters of Genesis. So, uh, I'm going to be reading from the English Standard Version. We'll start off in Genesis 2, read from verse 15, again skipping a few verses to the end of the chapter. And then we'll uh, look at Genesis 3. So, Genesis 2.15, would you please stand as Scripture is being read. The Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. What a a noble thing. Before the fall, Adam was put in the garden to work it and keep it. If you're not doing ministry like these guys up here and you think, why am I not doing ministry? Um, Adam was the first farmer and it was a noble, noble work that he did. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden. 
But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good that man should be alone. I will make him a helper fit for him. And in verse 21, So the Lord caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs... And closed up his place with flesh. Cl closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man. He made into a woman and brought her to the man. Then the man said. This at last is bone of my bones. And flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman. Because she was taken out of man. Therefore. A man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife, and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pray. Father, we live in a very confusing time. A very painful time. I, I don't know that there are many of us who are greatly encouraged about how things are in life. and How things are heading. Uh, Lord, uh, even as we engage this difficult time in which we live. I, there is so much truth for us. The very beginning of time that is written about and given to us as the word of God from Genesis. Lord, we ask that as we come to your word this morning. That we would not come with a skeptical heart of evaluating and judging. But that you would. Uh, Lord, indeed, that we would put ourselves in the position of allowing you to judge our hearts. And as you do, Lord, fill us with joy for the grace that is given to sinners. In that grace, uh, we rest and we pray all of these things in the name of the Son, through whom grace uh, came fully and completely to us, Jesus. Amen. Thank you, BC. In verse 25, we're told that Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed. Now, this would have been quite surprising to the Hebrews who were the first to read the Scripture and the ones who, who cared most about the Word of God throughout uh, the ages up until the time of Christ. It would have been surprising because nakedness was considered shameful as it was often associated with with guilt, just think about Noah, you think about the children of Israel, the altar, um, when Moses was getting the commandments from the Lord. It's interesting, is it not, that their nakedness was the first thing they noticed when their eyes were open. But the sin they committed was not a sexual sin. And yet, they looked at their bodies and they said, well, this is, we can't, we're naked before the Lord and, this, and we're not in a good place. So we need... To cover up. In our day we're going as far as we can in the opposite direction. We're trying to say nakedness is fine. It's fine. There's no, God made our bodies. You know we bring God into it. God made our bodies. Nothing wrong with it. Nothing to be ashamed of. Now do not misunderstand. I'm not saying that sex is wrong or shameful. There have been a number of theologians through the years that have made that mistake. Maybe the, one of the. Most important theologians, Augustine, had that idea. It was a very Platonist idea that, 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 that sex is dirty and it's wrong. The Gnostics felt that way back in the day. Sex is a beautiful gift from God in the appropriate context. <coughs> also note, not only is it given to us in Genesis, but Jesus affirmed the beauty of one man and one woman in marriage. How willing are you to be persecuted for that belief. And for your willingness to say that. 
going to have to make that call probably. Someday, I'm, I'm guessing in the future. Um, you're going to have to jump, though, through a lot of theological hoops to justify nakedness and sexual activity according to contemporary cultural norms. Again, everything goes back to Genesis 1 through 3. Look again. Let's look at, not again, but let's look at Genesis 3 where you're not going to need a lot of explanation to understand this. You only need to believe it. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, You shall not touch of the, the, touch, eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. Satan's bringing questions. Maybe Eve's adding to the word, probably so, is what's going on here. <clears throat> verse 6. Um, so, uh, verse 4, I'm sorry. But the serpent said to the woman, You, you will not. Surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some of it to her, some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. Now look, I've, I've heard, I don't know if this, it's pretty decent speculation. Adam may have said, you know, I'm going to see what happens to Eve. I mean, if, if, if she dies, God will give me another one. I mean, look, he was responsible. He's held responsible. He'll make another one if, if, if something happens to her, so I'm going to wait and see. <clears throat> but Adam ate. Then the, then the eyes of both were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And the man and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. But the Lord God called to man and said, said to him, where are you? Did God know where Adam was? Of course, that was for Adam and Eve's benefit. And he said, I heard the sound of you in the garden, and I was afraid because I was naked, and I hid myself. Now, I imagine that Adam and Eve expected to die right then and there. God had said, in the day that you eat the fruit, you will die. By this point, they probably understood death, and they were no doubt afraid. They, they acknowledged it. I, I, I was afraid because I was naked. I, I, I've been exposed, and I hid myself. Indeed, they had already died spiritually. And the process of physical death, whether they knew it or not, had already begun in their bodies. But instead of immediate execution, God extended grace, even in the face of their excuse-making and their blame-shifting. Verse 11, he said, Who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten of the tree of which I commanded you not to eat? The man said, The woman who you gave to be with me, she gave me the fruit of the tree and I ate. That's a good excuse, isn't it? This woman that thou gavest me. This man that thou gavest me. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this that you have done? The woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord God said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you above all livestock and above all beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and dust you shall eat all the days of Of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman. And between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head. And you shall bruise his heel. 
Now, maybe you've never thought much about Genesis 3.15. It's known as the Proto-Evangelium or the first mention of the gospel in Scripture. Even though Satan, who is the serpent, will inflict a great deal of misery on mankind and even on, a, on the Savior, a man who will be born to Eve and or her offspring will ultimately crush the head of the serpent. In Genesis 4.1, when Cain was born, Eve said, I have gotten me a man with the help of the Lord. I'm sure that Eve thought Cain was the one. This is the one God was talking about. He's going to make everything right. Uh, we know how long that lasted. It didn't last very long at all. Cain was a murderer. Well, then Noah. Uh, no, he got drunk right after. It was just shameful. Uh, what about Moses. Couldn't make it to the promised land. The law just not going to get you in. David! Uh, no. His son Solomon, because the covenant was promised to David. No. It was not until Genesis, excuse me, it was not until Jesus was born that all the promises of Genesis 3.15 were fulfilled. <laughs> then, verse 16. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain in childbearing. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband, but he shall rule over you. None of that going on today. So I don't know why we think that's relevant. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Do you know what grace there is in that? What do you think when God said, cursed, cursed? What do you think Adam was expecting? Are you? But he deflected and said, cursed is the ground because of you. In pain you shall eat of it all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth for you. And you shall eat the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face you shall eat bread. Till you return to the ground. For out of it you were taken. For you were dust. And to dust you shall return. The man called his wife's name Eve. Because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife. Garments of skins. And clothed them. We'll stop there. As Adam and Eve stood there with the cold and wet, bloody skins of animals that had been slain to cover the guilt of their sin, what must that have felt like to them? Now look, we think when God clothed them, most likely He you know, sewed it together, He cleaned it all up. Probably, as Carl Truman speculates, we're going to be talking a little bit about Carl Truman it was just the bloody, wet, nasty skins that clothed them and covered their shame. This was, in essence, the first sacrifice. Death as the consequence of sin. Carl Truman said this about it, quote, Sacrifice is connected to salvation and grace. Sacrifices were raw and bloody affairs. In other words, there is no grace apart from sacrifice. I don't know if you've noticed, it just seems like in this series, over and over, we, we're talking about um, uh, sin and our utter dependence of God for salvation week after week. Why? Because God's grace will never be meaningful apart from our understanding of and acknowledgement of sin. It's one of the reasons that screaming at each other is so foolish, guys. I have to acknowledge my sin before the Lord. And when I do, God's grace can come to me. And it's beautiful when He allows me to see my sin because then and only then will I fall on my face and turn to Him and know joy that I just did not think possible. Uh, we'll close this portion of the message with Psalm 83, 16. Fill their faces with shame 
that they may seek your name, O Lord. That is just, what? If you just saw that with no context, you're like, what? But in context, it makes perfect sense. We do not experience grace apart from repentance of sin. It's powerful, isn't it? Well, contemplate the wisdom of such a prayer as our two panelists make their way uh, to the platform to discuss the great truths of grace alone. Bert Wallace is a professor of uh, theater arts at Campbell University. He's right in the middle of a play. Uh, uh, thank you, uh, Professor Wallace, for um, squeezing in the play between this uh, big panel or uh, around this big panel. And then also, uh, Jim McLaughlin, you have seen before, professor at the Campbell School of Law. Uh, and so these guys are going to talk about grace alone. Um, you gentlemen have been reading uh, Carl Truman's book titled Grace Alone. And it, at the end of the book, Jim, as you pointed out yesterday, it would be a good idea for us to put uh, the 10 marks of a grace alone kind of church. So we're just going to leave these up here. Um, and if you guys feel, please feel free to talk about this at any point. I, it's one of the most unnecessary things I've said today. Feel free to talk to, to, to you guys. Jim, you're uh, one of the founding members of Grace Community Church. You were on the team that wrote our church constitution, which was ratified by the founding members. So tell us why the name Grace Community Church. What's so big about grace that you wanted it in the name of the church? Well, it's a long story, which we'll try to make shorter. Uh, but we had been members at a church, and of course, it's, I'm always uncomfortable talking about some of the church that caused all this to happen. But thank God for it. This did happen because of that. But we had consistently heard sermons on Sunday that basically told us we just had to do better. We had to be better people. We had to clean up our act. And uh, we spent most Sundays at lunch explaining to our two sons, you understand that's not the gospel. So we had to de-preach what had been preached every Sunday. And you ask, what were you doing staying there? And as the head of, the, of, the, of my family, the spiritual leader, I, I felt guilty about that. Uh, and there are a lot of reasons, I, but I just... Failed. I failed as a, as a leader. Uh, and then when we finally did leave, when it came to a head, uh, we wanted to do the exact opposite. We wanted to go to grace. And, and in studying for this panel, for example, uh, John chapter 6 sort of sums up <clears throat> real quickly. I'm going to just read a few verses from John 6. Uh, so, you know, Jesus is, was t talking about and telling him that he's the bread of life, uh, that he's the only way to the Father. And so the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? And, and then later, when, when many of his disciples heard, he, he went on to preach some hard things. Uh, and when many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. Who can listen to it? And after many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him, so Jesus said to the twelve, Do you want to go away as well? And Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life, and we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. And that understanding that we have no hope apart from Christ is what led us to name this church. Grace Community Church, because it's God's grace and only God's grace that enables us to be in good standing with God. Yeah, that's, uh, that, that's beautiful. I don't know why it's so hard for people to accept grace, and that, therefore I think we have a lot of different definitions of grace. Bert, uh, would you care to speak to maybe a biblical definition? Yeah, well, um, it's, uh, I think it's a, it's a difficult concept for us today, um, partially because we don't, as a culture, 
I think we have we don't really acknowledge our our sin uh, and our uh, you know most most people that you talk to will say well you know yeah everyone does bad things but we're you know we try to do the right thing I try my best you know and I try to you know I try to you know kind of be kind to people you know and so it's hard we don't really understand the the depravity of our hearts uh, which is one thing the reformers really talked about a lot. And so the grace is God's unmerited favor, undeserved, unearned. Um, but it's more than just favor. It's His favor on account of Christ. So it's Christ that merits God's favor, and then that is then imputed to, to us. And, and again, I think that's hard for us to understand because... We're told constantly how we des- how much we deserve, oh. um, and and so it's hard for us, I think, in this time and place, to think that I I really don't deserve anything. Or as sometimes people say, "Thank thank God I don't get what I deserve," um, because we just we're told that so much. You know, you oh you deserve you know that vacation, you deserve that promotion. You've and we're we're told constantly if you'll just work hard enough, and, and if you want it enough, you'll, you'll get it, you know, and God helps those who help themselves and all that. We may talk about that a little later, um, but, but that's what grace is. It's completely unmerited favor from God, uh, and only on account of Christ can we be um, acquitted of our sins. It's, it's more that it's not just, I think it's easy sometimes to misunderstand grace as just sort of permissiveness on God's part, you know, well, it's okay, don't worry about it. You know, sort of like a, a, grand, a grandfather, you know, like a benevolent sort of, oh, don't worry, it's okay, I know you did bad things, but it's okay. It's, but it's more than just that. It's, it's, it's almost like, well, God just overlooks our sin. Right, right. And, and that's the popular connotation of our understanding, just totally wrong, of course. Right, it's not just God saying, don't worry about it, because... Because the sin is there and it has to be dealt with, just like we just talked about in Genesis. Like God didn't come down and just say, you sinned, but it's okay. I love you. Don't worry about it. Yeah, okay. and he didn't just say, do better. And I think that's <laughs> the reason we do think this about grace being, oh, just permissive. Because God knows we're doing our best. Um, so let's do talk about that then. Uh, isn't, it, isn't it true that God helps those who help themselves? And why is it not? Well, it's kind of it's kind of loaded at this point, but but I bet if we took a uh, a poll in here, sort of examine yourselves, we won't do that right now. But there's probably a a, a measurable percentage of people here who think that that's a, a Bible passage. God helps those who help themselves. Uh, it isn't. Uh, I don't know. I really don't know where that comes from. It seems like it's it's probably Ben Franklin. You know, he he's, he did a lot. Of, he, he's a cause of a lot of our problems. I think. Uh, he did a lot of good stuff for us too. It's yeah. kind of, a very interesting, important figure. Um, definitely not one of you know. A lot of people. There's a lot of debates about the founding fathers and were they Christians or deists or whatever. Um, there's really would be no debate about Benjamin Franklin. Okay, right. ben, Benjamin Franklin, not uh, definitely not a believer. All right, um, but yeah, it's it, it's it's not at all a, a biblical idea. Although a lot of um, uh, People, when surveyed, including people who would describe themselves as evangelicals, um, which is something we've been talking about as a, a term that's come to really not mean very much. I think we basically have a generation that's, I don't know how old that term has been popular, maybe 25, 30, 40 yes, years. Yes, it, it's or sort something. of resurfaced. Martin Luther wanted uh, his group to be known as evangelical or Christian, but then it just took a <laughs> Long sabbatical, and recently evangelical has been a very uh, last hundred years or so, and then twenty five years we have owned it very uh, right. And I, but strong. but I think now we have a, a, a it's just become a catch all term for a certain type of non Catholic, non mainline Protestant people, um, and uh, you know, and if and surveys. That have been done. Uh, some surveys by uh, Lifeway, Legionnaire uh, partnership between Lifeway, which is a Catholic. Uh, I mean, <laughs> excuse me, Southern not Baptist. Catholic, uh, a Baptist um, 
sort of survey organization and, and Legionnaire Ministries, which is uh, R.C. Spruill, so more reformed, uh, anyway, a partnership, and they did a bunch of uh, surveying of people at large and then also people in, uh, who would describe themselves as evangelicals um, about those kind of things. Um, things like, um, let me, I've got a bunch of them written down here. Um, you, you do the first one, I'll do the rest of them. <laughs> I don't know what the first one is. People can turn to God of their own initiative, that's one. That doesn't really speak to this one. Um, that's uh, 79% of all Americans would say, yes, of my own initiative, I can turn to God. Um, accounting for a margin of error, it's basically exactly the same for evangelicals. 82%, a slightly higher percentage of American evangelicals say, yes, it's, it's up to me. I can on my own uh, turn to God. Uh, the one that speaks a little bit more specifically to, to this, in my opinion, is... Um, um, the idea that uh, um, a person takes his initiative, ta uh, here's the quote, and you agree with it or not, is kind of how it was done. A person takes the initiative to seek God, and then God responds with grace. So I go to God and say, oh, look, I need your help. Okay, yes, I will help you out. 70% um, of Americans said that, agreed with that. 86% of evangelicals ag agree with that statement, self-described evangelicals. Uh, so that's, the pro that's a problem that we're facing right now. We would ask the question, most of us in this room would probably say, how can that be? How can 86% of evangelicals think that we are the ones that take the initiative with God and then he responds to us? And the answer, I think, is we're taught that over and over again in, in our culture. And we're taught that in so many ways. Just yesterday, my lovely sweet wife, Diane, was reading on Facebook a, note, a, a, a message from a pastor in California who's trying to get people to come to his church. He's doing a lot of good things. I mean, it's in Hollywood, you know, the, the, the bastion of sin, we might say. And... He's trying to get people to come to church. He's trying to plant his new church plant. And at the end of this long message where he's trying to attract people to come to his church, he says, you are worthy of being cared for. You are worthy of being loved. You are worthy of being found. He's telling people that they are worthy, that they're good. And that is the exact opposite of the gospel. See, the problem is, the gospel is stranger to the modern evangelical than the law. That's scary. Yes, it is. There, there is a great deal of um, uh, error in Protestant churches. Um, I, I, you were going to respond, Bert? Uh, I was just going to say that it, 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 it's stranger, this concept of depravity and the need for, for true grace, for the need for the totally unmerited God must come to me. It has nothing to do with me. Uh, modern evangelicals at large are more wrong about that than, than Catholics are. Um, and uh, in True. the Reformation, uh, Calvin, for example, talked, uh, wrote a letter to the king of France and, and said, we are presenting to you pure Catholicism. You know, they, they weren't saying... Forget Catholicism, we got something new here. You know, that they were coming and saying, well, no, 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 we have begun to get away, drift away from uh, the truth of the gospel, and so we're going back. You know, we're, we're going back to true. And really, the word just means universal. I mean, the, the Apostles' Creed talks about, you know, I believe in the Holy Catholic Church. You it know, means the, you universal. Know, the universal church of Christ. Yes, know. and it was written, the, the, the Apostles' Creed, by the way, was written before uh, the Catholics were in the shape that we know them now, right, if, right, if, yeah. if we don't accept the Catholic Church in the first several centuries uh, after Christ, then we have no Christianity. Uh, but, the, but the church drifted, and one of the ways they drifted was to say, uh, we believe in infused righteousness. It's sort of like God gives his grace to us. He infuses us with grace, and that enables us to do better and make ourselves good enough to stand before him. Michael Horton uh, says it's kind of like coffee. 
You know, it's like, I can do a lot of things okay, but if I do have coffee in the morning, then I can do them a whole lot better. And that's what God does. He, he enables us to be good. But original sin says, uh-uh, you can't be good enough. Talk about that a little bit. And you, Jim, you said total depravity. What, what do you guys mean by that? Well, it's our failure to understand original sin, obviously. And you're talking about this coffee thing, this infusion thing that the Catholics came up with. I think it was Luther who said, uh, believing that and having been taught that over and over, decided, well, it's, it's like we're, we're, we're basically good people. Uh, we're born good. We're not born with sin. We're born okay. And then the culture infuses and gets in us, and the culture makes us bad. It's just like we saw in Genesis. <laughs> Adam says, well, it was that woman you gave me. And the, the, the woman God gave him says, no, it was that snake. Uh, and everybody thinks, well, I'm okay. I, did, I wouldn't have done this but for something else. So it's this, the culture has made us bad. And, and so Luther says, well, what I'll do is I'll remove myself from the culture. And I'll become a monk, and I'll go to a monastery, and I won't have to put up with all this cultural stuff, and I'll be good, because I'm basically good. But then, in retrospect, Luther said, the problem was, I took myself <laughs> with me. And that's when he understood he was innately simple. Yeah, in, in, uh, in Matthew chapter 15... Yeah. Um, Math, uh, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees who are always trying to trip him up. And, um, and he says, um, uh, this is starting in verse 10. I'll just read a couple of verses. He called the people to him and said to them, Hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth that defiles a person. Um, and then the disciples came and said to him, Do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? Uh, and he goes on to, to talk about that, but because that the whole pharisaical idea was, well, we're pure, and then sort of bad things can come into us. But if we'll just keep away from all the bad stuff, you know, not do, you know, not subscribe to the culture and so forth, then we'll be pure. But that's Jesus says that's not it. It's what comes out of you. It's not what you're putting into yourself or the the influences that are around you. But it's you. It's coming. You know, what comes out of you it reveals your 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 sin, your need for a savior. So this uh, theological term, total depravity, doesn't mean that we're as bad as we could be, uh, but it means that every part of our being is affected and tainted by sin, even our ability to reason and understand God. They were trying to, Adam and Eve were trying to make excuses when God, tried to, when God called them on their sin, not tried to call them on their sin. Um, so is, is that the reason that we talk so much about sin? I mean, you, look, it's offensive to talk about sin. People are offended by that. Is it necessary to be that focused? Well, you can't, you can't get saved until you know you're lost. And you don't know you're lost until you understand that you're sinful. Why is it so offensive for people to hear you're sinful? When, when the person saying it is saying, look, I'm, I'm sinful. We're all sinful. It's not that we're saying I'm better than you are, like so much of the dialogue today. It's like saying, it's just saying we're all sinful. Why is that so offensive? Because of sin. <laughs> well, That's it, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, well, it's certainly, and now I guess it's, it comes in waves culturally across history, but right, certainly right now, uh, gosh, the idea that, something is wrong with me. I mean, gosh, if you dare to suggest something is wrong with someone, that, that's just, it's unforgivable right now. I mean, what, anything about them. I mean, just, well, we're, to, we're actually inconsistent about that. Certain things are totally unacceptable in our culture, but most things are, you know, don't judge, you know, that, gosh, that's such a misunderstood notion. Uh, don't, but that, that just seems to be our mantra. Do not judge me. Well, it's, it's the same thing Satan did, right? Take Scripture out of right, context. Sure. Well, and Spurgeon said, uh, no one has to be taught Pelagianism, the heresy that denies that we are sinners by birth. We all come into the world thinking that we're good. We must be taught the opposite. Yeah, so that's the thing. It's like you're, you're swimming upstream and, and trying to 
uh, spread the word while you're going upstream and the water is coming at you. Everybody thinks we're good. Now, quite a few years ago, uh, there was less need for this uh, doctrine. Probably people understood that they were sinful, at least at some nature. They had heard the word taught enough. And they needed to hear the good news about God's grace. And it is wonderful news. So do am I correct in thinking or am I incorrect in thinking that because God's grace has been so good to sinners, then after I'm saved, I can live any way I want to. Does God's grace allow me to do that? Or does he expect me to keep a certain standard? Paul says no. <laughs> he says it rather strongly. In Romans he? chapter 6. He says, God forbid. Yes. And in another place, Paul says, may they be condemned. They're worthy of condemnation, those who say that we preach this. But it's just, it's such a difficult balance, I think, to, to maintain. Uh, because, you know, Paul tells us, should I sin that grace may abound? God forbid, may it never be so. So it's so easy to slip into Therefore, I better be good. I better, you know, I better be good yes, or is. I'm going to slip down, you know. It's good. And it's just we're back and forth, back and forth. I think it's, it's part of our, our fallen state, you know, that we just, it's very difficult to, to maintain equilibrium. But I guess that's kind of the point is we can't, we, you know, I can't maintain it on my own. It's only through this unmerited grace. power and grace that I can uh, hope to, to ha well, just have any hope at all. Yeah. Without grace, we go to legalism immediately. Right, and then we swing the other direction. <laughs> right. Probably next fall, I will do this. I like to do it about every three or four years. Preach on Romans 5, 6, 7, and 8. And in Romans 5, we get the significance of Genesis 1 through 3, where Paul says, um, all are born into Adam. There are two families of mankind, those who belong to Adam and those who belong to Jesus. All belong to Adam. And then when we are adopted into Jesus' family, we are no longer in Adam. So Romans 6 says we don't have to sin. You don't have to sin if you're a believer because Christ lives in you and you are no longer in Adam. Then Romans 7 comes along and says, uh, yes, that? but Adam still lives in you. <laughs> and you will sin until the day you die. And your understanding though in Romans 8 that the Spirit of God, if anything good is going to happen in our lives, if we are going to live according to God's design, it's going to be the Spirit who accomplishes that for us, both in salvation and in our sanctification. Justification and sanctification. That's a lot to put in, and if you guys want to have a closing word. Well, uh, that, yeah. just to go on a little bit, in Romans, in, in chapter 9, getting back to the God helps those who help themselves uh, thing, uh, you know, in chapter 9, he says... Um, uh, God says, he's quoting, God says to Moses, uh, I will have mercy on whom I will have mercy. I will have compassion on whom I will have compassion. Um, and then uh, Paul goes on to say, so then it depends not on human will or exertion. And the, old, the old King James says, neither he who wills nor he who runs, which I think is really wonderful language. It depends not on he who wills or he who runs, but on God who has mercy. So it's not just I want it, I'm going to run after it and seek it. It's not, that's not it. It's only God who comes to us completely uninvited because we couldn't do anything. We couldn't, we can't seek God without his grace coming to us first because he tells us also in his word that we are, we were dead we were dead men and women. Uh, this is Ephesians 2, uh, 5. God being rich in mercy because of the great love which he, with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. Yep, so, yep. It was, does, you know, if we're dead, we can't, dead people aren't doing anything. <laughs> They're not seeking after God. You know, we're dead until grace comes completely unmerited because of Christ's sacrifice. Yeah, that's our text for next week. And it is a difficult word for some people. We have to do something with all of the passages in Scripture. And they are many that say this very thing. We have no hope unless God intervenes in our lives. 
So, uh, Jim, I know that these 10 uh, points really struck you. Anything you want to say on these as we uh, close this time together? Well, in reading this book by Truman, he says that take number seven takes preaching seriously. He also says that the most important means of grace available to the believer is the proclamation of the word from the pulpit. So preaching is a means of grace, as is baptism, as is the Lord's Supper. So uh, what does that say about attendance at church? Takes, well, takes the corporate gathering of the visible church seriously. Amen. Believers who are serious about their relationship with Christ will be in church on Sunday. Yes, and can I say this? Uh, so you can go ahead. You're going to be mad at me next week. So as we get a head start on that. Uh, I'm, I'm doing my absolutely best. I'm doing my absolute best to try to be in here when the church when church starts. When David is up here giving announcements, that's part of our worship. You you can do it, it, it all week long to get to work on time. Let's be in church on time Sunday morning and take. What we're doing seriously. I, I think again it all goes back to Genesis. It's life or death. We deserve immediate death. Just like Adam did. I heard someone say recently. If I got what I deserve I'd be in hell now. Not when I die. I'd be in hell right now. But God in his grace and mercy. Has given us this beautiful plan of salvation through Jesus. And we affirm it every week. We affirm it through baptism, the Lord's Supper, through preaching, through prayer. Let's respond to God's grace as He enables us to, according to His Word. Amen. I'm going to pray for us, and the worship team will come and close us out this morning. Father, <laughs> we're thankful. For the grace of God. The grace of God that brings salvation. Has appeared to all men. Teaching us. To deny ungodliness. And unrighteousness. Lord. We have no hope of being righteous. Apart from the spirit of God. And it's not. A popular sentiment today. But I have. <laughs> all ideas that almost everybody. In this room. Almost everybody. Would believe the words of scripture. And to say yes. I am a sinner. My only hope is God. Lord make us gracious people. Make us humble people. Make us Christ like. May we. Be willing to live. Cross centered lives. And, and, and extend grace. To those all around us. That they might. Know the grace of God in Christ. And believe. In Jesus' name, amen. Receive now the benediction. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God the Father and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with each of us this week as we go our separate ways. God bless you. Thank you for listening to audio from Grace Community Church located in North Carolina. Feel free to make copies of this audio content to share with others. But please do not charge for those copies or alter the content in any way without permission. For more information about Grace Community Church, go to graceccnc.org.